you look at Genesis chapter 3 once again this morning and then turning to Luke chapter 2. Genesis chapter 3 beginning in verse 16. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim in a flaming sword that turned everyone away to guard the way to the tree of life. Then Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those whom he is pleased. Thus far the reading of God's word. Please be seated. I know that if you are pregnant these days, it is popular to have what's called a birth plan. I don't remember having this when we were having babies, either because this was prior to our uh, having them, this phenomenon, or perhaps more likely it was because I was fully ignorant of our actual birth plan, which is completely possible. My wife's birth plan, I think, for me was just make sure you're there, which I'm glad to say I accomplished for all four of our children, but that's really not saying much, is it? Then again, fathers, what do we accomplish at birth other than to be there? But these days, you have to have everything planned out from the beginning to the end. And so this week, I did an internet search on create your own birth plan. And it came back with checklists and templates and tools on how to create this plan for birth. And I was told in this search that a birth plan is a written document that helps mothers achieve the labor they have always envisioned, a personal wish list for your ultimate birthing experience. And it's that phrase, an ultimate birthing experience. I'm not really sure what that means or what that even entails, but when you read about the birth of Jesus Christ, I do not think Mary and Joseph would say, that at the birth of Jesus Christ, 
that it was the ultimate birthing experience. The result, yes, that was ultimate. In the arms, they had the promised one, the one from long ago. But the process itself, the process was not ultimate, nor what they would have ever, quote-unquote, envisioned. I don't think delivering in a stable was a part of Mary's checklist. No, the plan was dictated on high, wasn't it? Even the pregnancy itself was unplanned, at least from her perspective. Yet it was God's plan. His plan was at work. Even in what seems like chaos and confusion, every part of the birth of Jesus Christ and the life was divinely orchestrated, filled with meaning and purpose. And part of it was him being the curse bearer. It meant that he had to endure the pain and the ridicule and ultimately the death of this earth. And that is what we've been looking at this Advent season, if you've been with us, in this series called The Crisis of Christmas. Seeing how Christ's advent, his coming was into a world of crises. That it was not a perfect world, but very much a fallen world, the world as we know it. And this Sunday, the last Sunday before Christmas, I want us to look particularly at the birth of Christ. And I want us to narrow in of the place of Bethlehem and the birth that took place there and those that came to visit. And so those will be our three points, the place of birth, the pain of birth, and then the people at the birth. And we'll look at those individually and then hopefully tie them all together. First, the place of birth. Two weeks ago, we saw how Mary and Joseph were commanded. In fact, they were dictated to leave Nazareth and travel to Bethlehem by an edict of Caesar Augustus. Well, why Bethlehem? Well, we know from Luke chapter 2 that they were to go there because Joseph was of the house and lineage of David. We remember that David, along with his father Jesse and his brothers, were all from Bethlehem. And that means that Bethlehem was a place of prominence, right? Well, no, not really. See, when we hear of Bethlehem, we hear a lot of meaning and significance. It's synonymous with Christmas. But in Jesus' day, not really. Its only claim to fame really was that it was the birthplace of David. And yet David's significance, if we think about it, came not necessarily from Bethlehem, but from Jerusalem, where he was the king. And as a result, Bethlehem is almost forgotten. It's an afterthought. Well, it's much like, have you ever heard of Westmoreland County, Virginia? Or this one, Winterset, Iowa. Probably not. But Westmoreland County, Virginia, was the birthplace of George Washington. Winterset, Iowa, was the birthplace of John Wayne. Those might be interesting little tidbits, a bit of trivial knowledge, but they really have no more significance than that. 
because these men became famous not just because of where they were from, but where they went to and what they did there. And the same goes for Bethlehem. Maybe there was a little plaque when you entered into Bethlehem that this was the birthplace of King David. Maybe the locals reminded the visitors that passed through of its significance, but to say it was a place of prominence, even in Jesus' day, was, well, just not true. In fact, I think Bethlehem would almost be forgotten in history if it were not for that one verse in the prophet's Micah. You remember it, Micah 5, 2, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. You hear what Micah says. Bethlehem, you are too little to be among the clans, which means by themselves they could not make up a garrison of soldiers. They would have to join with other small towns because they were not big enough by themselves. They were insignificant. They were too small in size to even really be noticed, to barely show up on the map. But isn't it interesting that from this place was this famous man, King David, who likewise, like his town, was overlooked. He was overlooked by Samuel. He was even forgotten by his father, Jesse, because both of them thought surely the older brothers, the stronger brothers would be the one that Samuel would choose because they were more king-like in their stature and in their appearance. And from that famous story, we have that wonderful verse that man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And it was the young boy out in the shepherd field that was guarding the sheep in the pasture that was the one that was to be chosen, that was to be the one that was going to be the greatest king before Christ, a man after God's own heart, a young man that was overlooked. And no doubt that was going to point to the one that would come from his line that would also be overlooked. And yet Micah says, from this overlooked place, there would come a ruler, an ancient ruler of old from ancient days, which no doubt is at least a hint of his divinity. Micah is saying from a place of insignificance will come great significance from a place of obscurity, great glory will shine forth. In a place of darkness will shine the greatest light of all. That's here in this insignificant town that Mary and Joseph are to go. And what is it that they find when they arrive? Do they receive a warm reception? Were there those waiting to receive them, this blessed mother so as to have this greatest child that is ever to be born, to be born in their small, little, quaint town. No, none of that is the story that we read, do we? In fact, we read quite the opposite, that they were relegated to the outskirts. Was it a stable? Was it a barn? Was it a cave? We're not quite sure. Were there animals there? Again, we're not positive. But we can, at the very least, say this. 
It was not a place of prominence. It was not a place of privilege. It surely was not the Ritz, not even Motel 6. Why? Because there was no place for them in the end. Was that because the inn was full? Or was it because the rumors had preceded them? The scandal that Pastor Myers touched on last week where they kind of put in a place out of sight so as not to be noticed by others. That is quite possible. And that would fit with the narrative that we read in John chapter 1 that he came to his own and yet his very own did not receive him. And yet we do know this, the Savior of the world made his appearance in the relegated obscurity of an obscure little town, in the outskirts of an outskirts town of Judah. There, that is the place that Christ was born. Well, we go on to see that he was born in the natural way that children are born, and we see the pain of birth. Surely one of the most succinct parts of the Christmas story is the actual birth of Christ. We see that, don't we? In verse 6, and while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth. As if it were that easy. Most of the women are probably thinking, yes, this was written by a man. But we're not to miss that Christ was born. That she, Mary, gave birth to a firstborn, a son. That means that Mary experienced Genesis chapter 3. That curse that falls upon all mothers in birth, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. And that is not only true of Mary, that is true of each and every one of us that entered into this world. We entered through this process, the process of pain. It isn't pleasure. It is not pleasant. It is not peaceful, but it is very much painful. And we might say the first experience, the first introduction of bringing life into this world is one of pain and anguish, both for mother as well as for child. We might say, what a welcome to this world. But yet it's somewhat fitting, isn't it? Because that pain doesn't stop at birth, does it? No, the preacher in Ecclesiastes says, For all our days are full of pain and of grief. Even at night, the heart is not at rest. Likewise, we go on to read in Genesis chapter 3, like we did earlier, that God says to Adam that cursed is the ground because of you in pain. You shall eat of it all the days of your life. We can say from the first moments on this earth until we leave this world, it is one pain after another. Why? Because of the curse on the earth. That is what we've been speaking about, isn't it? That we are 
relegated, that our lot in life is one of toil. Even though we may try to lessen it as much as we can, we cannot ultimately prevent it. But there's pain, there's anguish, there's despair, there's agony, all of which finds its way into our life. And many of you have experienced that pain, be it physical or mental or emotional or spiritual, be it the pain of loss, pain of loneliness. At times it's inexpressible and unspeakable. And there is ultimately no pain reliever that can take it away, no pill that can solve it, no vaccine that can do away with it. It cannot be numbed or dulled. And it could be something recent, it could be fresh, or it could be many years ago, and yet the very thought of it still cuts deep. I know from my family, the illness of my wife over the last several years has experienced a lot of pain, even more than just the physical. Even though the physical pain was enough, but the mental and the emotional, we would tell you, was far worse. The four years of isolation for her, which she's only slowly emerging from. And even more than that, the the struggling, the spiritual struggling, the wrestling with the Lord, asking why, Lord, for the millionth time. Pain, we know it all too well. And yet, when we read this story, we must understand that Mary experienced pain, both at the birth as well as far beyond. Simeon, whose words we read at the call to worship, tells Mary specifically in the temple that the sword will pierce through your soul as well. No doubt because she would be present at the crucifixion of her own son. What a sword-piercing pain that must have been for a mother to experience that and to see that. She may have been the mother of our Lord, most blessed of women, yet she was not exempt from pain or suffering. Nor was Jesus, was he? No, he was not just sent to the earth. He wasn't just beamed to earth from above. No, his appearing was the same as all of our appearings through pain and in pain. And his life was one of suffering. We read of in Isaiah that he was to be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. That is the description, the summary of his life. In other words, we can say that From the beginning all the way to the end, he endured this suffering, this pain, this anguish of this world. No doubt, especially at the end with his nail-pierced hands, his sword-sliced side, and his thorn-punctured head. And yet that was the least of his pain. The far greater pain was being forsaken by the Father, who he was eternally with. And yet the Father turning upon him. Oh, the pain, the curse of pain was upon our Lord. But from the pain, we also read about this at the birth. We see the the people at the birth 
In Luke 2, we have this very succinct birth narrative. And then the scene quickly changes in verse 8 to the fields where the shepherds are. And if we think about it, we must really say this is quite odd, isn't it? The greatest birth that would ever occur in this world has just taken place. And yet, who is the ones that receive, who are the ones that receive the first birth announcement? Who does it go to? It goes to shepherds. Not to the upper echelons of society, not to people in power and influence, but to poor shepherds. In the social strata of people, they are but nobodies. And yet they weren't just one of many groups that received this announcement. No, they were the only group to receive an announcement at all. And what an announcement. Ranks upon ranks of angels. It's as if the curtain between heaven and earth is torn away and they are able to view upon the very throne room of heaven itself the full glory of the heavenly of heavens is on display. And we have this wonderful fanfare. This is truly the hallelujah chorus of all the angels. And yet this greatest display of glory was, in a sense, humanly speaking, wasted on shepherds. With very little influence. Very little sway on society. And yet they were the ones to receive it. And they were the ones to be first on the scene. To welcome this newborn king. And so do you not see with this birth that with the place and with the pain and with the people. We have a very unique entrance into the world. And yet doesn't this all paint a picture of what kind of Savior he would? Doesn't it demonstrate the true heart of God and the salvation that he would render, the mission, the work that he would be about and still is about? That these small, minor details demonstrate a revelation of who he is and what he has come to do. As we read at the end of Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve were, were driven out of the garden. And it says that they were driven out east of the Garden of Eden. And that is what the theologians call the world that we live in. We live in a world that is east of Eden. And yet that is the world that Christ came into. However, it was not too far gone, as we would say, for the Almighty to send forth his Son. And yet he was not sent in pomp and circumstance, but rather in lowliness and humility. He was not born in a city of reputation or even of notice. He was not born in a palace of a king, but rather in a small stable of a backwater town, too small to be noticed, and a manger of hay was his royal bed. Likewise, Christ was willing to be born in this way, the way that all humans are born, in a way that he created them to give birth, so that he would be like his creation in every way, to be enfleshed, 
in blood and in body forever. And yet even this was not too lowly for him. We can say that his humiliation even reached to this depth. As that wonderful Christmas hymn so rightly puts it, God of God, light of light, but lo, he abhors not the virgin's womb. And then to have the very first people that come to greet him, to worship him, not be the kings, not be the religious leaders of the day, not to be the priests, but everyday average Joe shepherds with no pole or sway. And then to be raised by two peasants that he created and made, only to go on to be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Or perhaps listen to how St. Augustine puts it. Man's maker was made man, that he, ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast, that the bread might hunger, the fountain thirst, the light sleep, the way be tired on his journey, that the truth might be accused of false witness, the teacher be beaten with whips, the foundation be suspended on wood, the strength might grow weak, that the healer might be wounded, and that life might die. In other words, who would have expected this? None of us would have. The whole of the incarnation, the whole of the life of Christ is surely beyond our comprehension, too wonderful for us to fully understand or grasp, and yet we are to fall to our knees and worship and say, truly, you are God. But from all of this, I think we can learn several points of application to us. And the first is this, is it not, that God's way of salvation is contrary to the expectations of man. God's way of salvation is contrary to the expectations of man. Surely Isaiah is right when he says, when God says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor my ways, your ways, declares the Lord. And this is truly the case with the story, the incarnation of Christ, but this is true of all of God's story. This is true of the story of salvation. This is what Nicodemus comes to Jesus and asks, how can these things be so? I do not understand. And for Jesus to say, well, the wind blows where it wishes And you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus is saying there is a mysterious work to the Spirit. We could say even beyond that, there is a mysterious work to the work of God. The story of God from Genesis to Revelation. You cannot read it and go, that's what I was expecting. No, all the time we have to be surprised and amazed and filled with wonder. And that is not only true of Scripture, that is true of ourselves. That is true of our story, isn't it? In our testimony. Not one of us could say, yeah, I expected to be this or to this to happen to me or God to do this in me. No, each and every one of us should really be saying, why me, O Lord? Why was I a guest? Why was I made to... Hear your voice and enter while there's room when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve 
then come. At the end of the day, each and every one of us must say, we don't know. We don't understand. It's beyond us. It's above our comprehension, other than to say it's the work of the Spirit of God. It's a part of His sovereign choice. And yet, doesn't that fit beautifully into the birth narrative and really all of Scripture? It's not what we were expecting. It's the inexplicable nature of grace, of God's work, that amazing grace that would save a wretch like me. And that grace continues to amaze, continues to drive us to worship. It fills our heart with gratitude and thanks. And it has us to go on to say that God surely delights to use the unlikely to display his glory. Listen to what one commentator says. The focal point in redemptive history is none other than the insignificant town of Bethlehem, showing that Israel's future greatness does not depend on a great human king, but a divine intervention to bring greatness out of nothing. Greatness out of nothing. Light out of darkness. Purpose out of pain. That is Christmas, isn't it not? And isn't that continuing to be the story of the kind of work in us and through of us? Isn't that what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, that not many of you were wise, not many of you were powerful, not many of you were noble, but what? God chose the foolish, God chose the weak, he chose the low and the despised in this world to shame the wise, to shame the strong, to shame the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of of God. That was true of the shepherds. That is true of you and me if you're in Christ this morning. You're not on the team because of your greatness or because of your gifts or your great works that you can do for the Lord. No, you are chosen in weakness. My power is made perfect in your weakness, the Lord says, in your suffering in your brokenness, in your pain. That's where the glory of God shines the greatest. If you do doubt that, just look no further than the incarnation of Christ. And look no further than the pain and the humiliation and the death of the cross. Even in that, the lowest point, we would say the lowest human experience isn't God's glory on the greatest display. In other words, God demonstrates that he will redeem pain. He will redeem your pain. He will use it for his glory. That truly is the hope in dark days of pain and suffering that many of you have experienced, that many of you are experiencing even in this moment. No doubt that is the hope that we clinged on to in the midst of dark days when there was not much light. We cling to those promises. We cling to the cross and say, God, we know, even though we don't understand, surely you can use this for your great glory and for your purpose. And he does. Why? Because in all of this, Christ demonstrates what kind of Savior he would be. He came 
into a broken world through a painful process. As that song that we just sang, he came to taste our sorrows so as to heal broken and pain-ridden people that were lost and crushed by sins and the burdens of this world that can be so easily forgotten so often because we feel so insignificant, don't we not? Recently, my wife and I were traveling back from Atlanta, and we were stuck in traffic, as oftentimes you are coming back from Atlanta, and we were surrounded by thousands of cars and the looming skyscrapers above us, and we had kind of an existential moment and said, do you ever just feel insignificant, lost in a sea of humanity, one of thousands or millions or even billions? Have you ever had those thoughts before, thinking, who are we? Nobody's really who notices our existence, our very being. And in our pain and our hurt and our wonder, we can oftentimes think, does anyone truly care? The story of the incarnation says that the God of the Bible does. He has come to redeem the forgotten, the overlooked, the misplaced, the downtrodden, the has-nots, because he came all the way down He came down into the muck and mire of this earth. He came to save the likes of us, to have the glad tidings of great joy be given to the least of these, those like you and me. Why? Because he came not abhorring the virgin's womb, nor abhorring insignificant wretches like you and me. He came for the bruise. He came for the weary. He came for the empty. Not just then, but now. As you are never out of his reach, you are never too far gone for his love. And so will you not come again this morning to him, to come into his embrace? Because he came for those that do not have it all together. For those that are not living their best life now that are bruised and battered by the fall, this Christmas is for you. This Savior is for you. Born in the city of David is wrapped a child in swaddling claws and lying in the manger, and he is Christ the Lord. In a moment, we're going to sing a very familiar Christmas hymn. It came upon a midnight clear. And we know these melodies of this Christmas song so well that oftentimes we do not listen to the words. Well, this particular Christmas hymn is, like many of them, is the song of the angels, that glorious song of good news to the shepherds. Let me give you the summary of this hymn. It goes like this, that the world has suffered wrong. In fact, 2,000 years of wrong. And as a result, we hear not the song. But the song says, oh, hush. Oh, hush, you men of strife. And hear the angels sing. Those beneath life's crushing load, painful steps and slow, rest beside the weary road. And hear, 
the angels sing. For there comes a day, not so long from now, that the whole earth will be at peace. And we will sing back the angels' song. We look forward to that day. But until that, may this Advent season, may you hush the chaos of this world and rest beside the weary road and hear the angels sing of peace on earth and goodwill to men from heaven's all-gracious King. For he is the one that has come in lowliness and meekness to save those that are low and despised. And he is coming again to redeem this earth and to bring that peace on earth and goodwill to men. Join me in prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we once again come to this oh-so-familiar Christmas story. But Lord, may we hear it with fresh ears and even more importantly, fresh hearts that receive the true glorious good news of this child born in a manger, the one that has come to save those that are low and despised, those that are of nothing and weak and foolish, so as to shame the wise and the strong and the things that are, so Lord, that you may gain all the glory. Lord, would we give you that glory this day as we rejoice in our hearts and our minds in the salvation that you have done in us individually and in us corporately. And may we sing with the angels' song that wonderful good news, that glad tidings of great joy be to all the people that born this day in the city of Bethlehem is a Savior who is Christ the Lord. It's in his name we come, it's in his name we pray, and it's in his name we sing.